It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. Our lead story this morning is about the possibility of your facility being able to predict the likelihood of an audit. Reporting on this latest development will be senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen, who is standing by. Also on the rundown this morning, healthcare attorney David Glazer reports on time-based billing. It's about time. Speaking of time and audits, there's more reporting on the recent buzz about auditors coming after IRF facilities to audit therapy minutes. One of the nation's foremost IRF authorities, Angie Phillips, is standing by to report that story. Monitor Monday's national correspondent, J. Paul Spencer, is going to report on the latest developments involving the Medicaid racks. And Monitor Monday's senior correspondent, Nancy Beckley, has the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey. Well, we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. Well, the saga of the total knee replacement continues. As many people know, you don't want to upset a surgeon. And it appears CMS did just that. In fact, I'd say CMS upset every orthopedic surgeon in the country because a letter was sent to Seema Verma, signed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery, the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, the Knee Society, the Hip Society, by the way, don't you want to go to one of their parties, and 35 other state and regional orthopedic societies. And in that letter, they were very clear that they are not happy with the many interpretations of this regulation and the resultant confusion of the 34,000 orthopedic surgeons that they represent. Dr. Stephen Sokolik of Texas Health Resources explained the problem very well. He works with orthopedists who only do hip and knee replacement. That means until this year, every surgery they did was inpatient only. So when he tried to explain that the change means that the status of a knee replacement patient would now be viewed as the same way they view the fracture of an arm needing surgery, the doctors found that humorous because they don't treat fractures. So we had to keep it as simple as possible. But we all know the regulations are far from simple and the answers given on the recent open door forum did nothing to clarify that. So the AAOS has asked CMS to develop clear criteria for status and to continue to say that outpatient TKA procedures would be appropriate only for carefully selected patients who are in excellent health with limited or no comorbidities and have sufficient caregiver support. The AAOS is also calling on CMS to intervene with the Medicare Advantage plans and their status determinations. Now, the AAOS is also very concerned with the impact that this change has on the bundled payment programs, as this will have a significant adverse financial effect on both physicians and hospitals, and they made several proposals to alleviate that problem. And it appears that CMS is at least listening to them, because in the letter, AAOS references that they've had several teleconferences with CMS, CMS which is much more than most of us have had. 
And to add to that, Nina Youngstrom just reported in Report on Medicare Compliance that a CMS medical officer spoke at the American Health Lawyers Association meeting on the rumors that just because the removal excuse me, that, that because of the removal of total knee replacement from the inpatient-only list, that there will be an increase in denials of claims. Dr. Cannon from CMS stated, quote, I wanted to dispel that misconception, end quote. That statement reassures me that CMS is well aware that this remains a big mess and they are not going to take any audit action until things settle down and get sorted out. And by the way, we also learned from Nina's reporting that so far no hospital has been sent to the rack from the QIO for short-stay audits. You can read Nina's article in the handout tab. Now, I think this all gives more support to the stance advocated by me in the past rack monitor articles and my webcasts, and what you'll be hearing if you attend the upcoming webcast with Mary Beth Pace and Dr. Jeff Pilger. We can admit patients for total knee replacement if it's well documented. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ron Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now for the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday senior correspondent, Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Chuck and Dr. Hirsch. Hip, hip, hooray. Well, going along with our theme this morning of how to predict the likelihood of an audit, I would say that physical therapists in private practice have likely had their audit chances increased based upon an OIG audit report that was released last Friday afternoon. And OIG did a report of 300 claims for outpatient therapy that were selected from July through December of 2013. In their report of their stratified random sample, they claimed that therapists claimed $12,741 in Medicare reimbursement on 184 claims that did not comply with Medicare requirements. So they have uh, made an extrapolated finding of $367 million. In their report, they made three recommendations to CMS. Remember, this was not to a specific provider, but it was a widespread probe. They recommended CMS instruct the Medicare administrative contractors to notify providers of potential overpayments so those providers can exercise reasonable diligence to investigate and return any overpayments identified overpayments. Another issue in the report was the OIG's parsing of the meaning of the GEMO settlement. So I want to encourage all providers here, even if you are a hospital and have outpatient therapy, it's an important document to read. CMS used a proxy, I mean, excuse me, OIG used a proxy of private practice to come up with their conclusions, and private practice probably only represents about 35% of the Part B claims to Medicare. So with that, I will bring up our poll for this morning. Final four, here we come. What's your pick for the final four? Click number one for Kansas. These are in alphabetical order, by the way. Number two for Loyola, Chicago. Number three for Michigan. Number four for Villanova. And if you have no pick, Pick number five. Chuck will be back later to see whose team everybody's for on Monitor Monday.
Great. Thanks, Nancy, very much for that uh, March Madness. Uh, that was Modern to Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the president and CEO for Nancy Beckley & Associates. And as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of this very serious and very important Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. And coming up, you're going to hear from Frank Cohen, David Glazer, Angie Phillips, and J. Paul Spencer. This is Monday. It's March 26th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Cardiac pacemakers yield high rates of reimbursement, and now they're also a medical necessity target for rack auditing. Getting the reimbursement you deserve is tricky, challenging, and complex. That's why Rack Monitor is conducting a two-part series on steps your facility can take so you won't leave money on the table or have your reimbursement recouped. Part one of the series features Jill Knight. Part two features Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Register now to attend both presentations. Cardiac procedures. Don't leave any money on the table. Part one with Jill Knight is this Thursday, March 29th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. To register, click on the rotating ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or call 800-252-1578, extension 2. Thank you, Clark Anthony. A program note, next Monday we're going to be reporting on the, the electronic lifeline for remote communities, telemedicine, of course. Telemedicine is now in the crosshairs of the OIG, and reporting our story next week is going to be Washington attorney Dale Vandemark. Here now with the Monitor Money Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And David, I would say it's about time, right? Chuck, speaking of time, I'll start by saying that I was at the University of Michigan Law School when Chris Weber took the timeout he didn't have while the Final Four was playing here in Minneapolis, but on to time-based billing. So when you provide an evaluation and management service, both the CPT code and Medicare policy offer a choice for determining the level of service. You can select a code based on the key components, or time. I think people know the key components are the history, exam, and medical decision-making, with most established patient codes and subsequent care codes allowing you to use two of those three and other codes, three of three key components. But if half of the visit consists of any combination of counseling or coordinating care for the patient, you can bill on the basis of time. Now, I hear a number of misunderstandings about time-based billing. First, some people seem to believe that if time appears in the note, or if counseling or coordinating care is more than half of the visit, there's some requirement that you must choose time as a method of, using, of electing the code. There's no such instruction. It's entirely permissible and even advisable to choose whichever method results in the higher code. I've also heard people insist that it's improper to round the amount of time. The CPT book explicitly indicates rounding of time is permitted. The typical time for a 99213 is 15 minutes. For a 214, it's 25. If a visit lasts 20 minutes and 30 seconds, it's appropriate to bill a 99214. Time should be rounded up and down to the nearest typical time. It's important to understand that when using time, it's generally inappropriate to combine time from different categories of professionals. For example, in a shared visit involving both a physician and a nurse practitioner, it would not be proper to combine the time spent by the two professionals. The total time in a note isn't the total time the patient spends with all medical professionals. It's the time spent with the professional whose name is on the claim. Now, I suppose this doesn't happen much, but if you had two physicians in the same specialty who both saw the patient on the same day, I think it would be possible to combine their time or similarly two nurse practitioners or physician assistants, but I haven't really encountered that situation. Now, 
According to CMS, the methodology for calculating time depends on the setting. In the clinic, CMS believes that only face-to-face -face time with the patient should be used. In the hospital, time on the floor can be counted if time is spent uh, coordinating care. Now, a federal judge was sharply critical of CMS's position. I think it was then HICFA. This was years ago in the Krizak case and noted the irrationality of permitting a physician to bill for time that was spent on the phone coordinating care if the physician made the call in the presence of the patient, but not if that same call was placed from the hallway. The safest route, however, is to assume that only face-to-face -face time counts in the clinic. I want to end with a caution. Any professionals using time should be aware of the importance of accuracy when using time. The EHR and various patient management tools will often have extremely accurate records of how long a patient was present in the office. If someone is loosey-goosey recording time, or worse yet, consciously exaggerates the amount of time, the risk of detection is quite high. Time is a totally appropriate way to bill for encounters, but it should be used with care. So Chuck, like Alan Parsons, I think you're beckoning me. Who knows when we shall meet again? If ever. If ever. But time, but time keeps flowing like a river. Keeps flowing like a river. To the sea. To the sea. And back to you. Thank you, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredericks and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. The Medicaid racks are back in the news, and of course, it's not all good news. Monitor Monday National Correspondent Jay Paul Spencer has that report. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Well, it strikes me that we, it has been a while since I gave an update of the Medicaid RAC program. Uh, as you might have guessed, uh, because of the shift to Medicaid managed care across the country, there has been a sharp curtailing of Medicaid RAC activities based on the fact that the work flow of the Medicaid rack goes for fee-for-service Medicaid rather than Medicaid managed care. So since the month of August through uh, just this past week, we have had a number of updates to the Medicaid uh, rack program uh, on a state-by-state -state basis, and I'd like to go through as many of them as I can in this four-minute segment. Uh, the state of California, as of August 31st, is now has an, ex an exemption from the Medicaid rack program, and this is based on the fact that they have a high managed care uh, allotment and they have asked for an exception. Um, the state of North Dakota has also asked for the same thing. They have a, uh, they now have an exception. Uh, they've had a, they had a rack vendor in place until March 31st of 2017, and that vendor quit actively auditing one year prior, uh, and they're not uh, seeing uh, a, a good amount of uh, vendors uh, bid for another uh, uh, contract and based on the number of appeals they felt that the uh, the program went nowhere in the state of North Dakota so the state of North Dakota as of 9-20-2017 no longer has a Medicaid RAC program. Uh, the state of Oregon uh, 
has asked for a change in their Medicaid RAC program to make certain that their recovery auditor doesn't go back more than three years under that program. So Oregon is still active, but it's only a three-year look-back period. For the state of Wyoming, as you might imagine, with the city of Milwaukee having more people than the entire state of Wyoming, the uh, Medicaid RAC program has been curtailed in that state as well uh, because they could not find a bidder. In the state of Maine, we have a delay of implementation through June 1st of 2019. This was granted on uh, October 20th of 2017. So there will be no Maine Medicaid RAC audits, at least until June 1st, 2019, or at the point where they get an exception, whichever comes first. Uh, The state of Kentucky uh, has updated their contingency fee language. If you're a Medicaid RAC uh, contractor in the state of Kentucky, this is your lucky day because you now get 12.5% on return for uh, dollars that are returned to the Medicaid program in the state of Kentucky. Uh, The state of Montana, uh, much like the state of uh, Wyoming, being rural and not having a large number of Medicaid recipients, has successfully uh, been granted an exemption from the Medicaid RAC program, and that was granted on 10-25 of 2017. Uh, The state of Mississippi uh, did have uh, some changes to their Medicaid RAC program. They now actually have one as of 11 and one uh, the uh, the types of audits that are going to be under that program are forthcoming uh, the uh state of Louisiana, the next door neighbor of Mississippi, is now exempt from the Medicaid RAC program, and they were granted that exemption on November 2nd of 2017. In addition, five days later, the state of Maryland has also been granted an exemption under the uh, uh, recovery audit contractor program for that state. Uh, I'm running out of time, and we have some other states to go over, as well as some uh, states that have added and subtracted some issues from uh, some of their uh, state Medicaid RAC programs. I will be revisiting uh, these changes in another broadcast, but right now, in the interest of time, I'll throw back to Chuck. Thanks, Paul, very much. That was Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer. Paul is a senior healthcare consultant with Doctors Management. Now, there's been considerable buzz about Medicare's most recent clarifications to auditors related to auditing therapy minutes. Now, with an update on the story, is nationally recognized IRF authority, Angie Phillips. So, good morning, Angie. Angie, you broke the story on Rack Monitor back in December. So, what's this latest buzz all about? Thanks, Chuck. Good morning to all our listeners. And I guess in this case, old news is new news. Over the past few weeks, there's been a lot of buzz about Medicare's instructions to medical review contractors about therapy minutes and the intensity of therapy services. We actually broke this story in e-news back in December when the information was originally provided. As is often the case with regulatory issues, it's taken some time for this guidance to be incorporated into the Medicare manuals, but on February 23rd, it was posted to the Medicare Program Integrity Manual with an effective date of March 23rd. This triggered the discussions that we're hearing about now. The clarifications actually had two do's and two do-nots for the contractors. The two do's, they were to verify that IRF documentation requirements were met, They were not to make denials solely on the threshold of therapy time or therapy minutes, 
not to make denials solely based on any situation or rationale that justified group therapy being present in the record, and they were to use clinical judgment to determine medical necessity of the earth therapy program based on the individual facts of the case. With recent increases in denials based on failure to meet therapy minutes, these clarifications are welcome news to the industry. Claims denial due to a patient missing just a few minutes of therapy on a given day has long been a frustration to providers, and quite frankly, it makes little sense to deny an entire earth stay for just this reason. Providing complex healthcare services in a patient environment includes a full team of experts, requires more than counting therapy minutes, and the potential for fewer denials in this area is long overdue. The guidance provides a logical approach to intensity of therapy services requiring contractors to use clinical judgment in the form of a medical review in cases where the therapy threshold, three hours of therapy on five out of seven days, or in well-documented situations, 15 hours of therapy per week, is not met. Additionally, the update to the manual specified that claims should not automatically be denied if the patient had group therapy and the reasons for group therapy were not included in the record. In this case, medical review would also be the determining factor. So, good news or bad news? As we noted back in December, this is very good news in a lot of aspects. However, there is some potential downside to that, and that is that ERFs may have more frequent audits of their therapy documentation. So ERS should not interpret this guidance as a waiver or a repeal of the three-hour therapy requirement as the general standard of care, but as a logical approach by Medicare to address the intensity of therapy and individualized care expectations when the general rule is met. Let me repeat that. ERS should not interpret this guidance as a waiver or repeal of the three-hour therapy requirement. So what's the downside if there is one? Well, there is a potential for more audits of therapy documentation related to this issue. In our experience, however, when the denials have been for therapy minutes, we've had high success rates on overturning those denials on appeal. But with the increasing scrutiny of therapy documentation, I believe it highlights the importance of being sure that we document, both in daily notes and in the team notes, to demonstrate why patients might not receive the requisite level of therapy and to validate what changes are being made in the plan of care to meet the patient's therapy needs. Further, ERF documentation should support that the patient continues to progress and meet IRF goals. So what's the bottom line? ERF should welcome this sensible change to the audit process, and we do not often use the word sensible and audit in the same sentence, but it's certainly logical and long overdue. We should remain consistent in providing an intensity of therapy services that meet the guidelines for reasonable and necessary. And those guidelines still state that the intensity is generally met by meeting the three-hour rule. And finally, documentation of patient status, patient needs, goals, and progress remain essential in demonstrating the level of care provided in the IRF. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Angie, very much. That was Angie Phillips. Angie is the founder and the president of Imogen Associates. And you can read Angie's article in the Rack Monitor E-News.
Our lead story this morning is about the possibility your facility might be able to predict the likelihood of an audit. Reporting on this latest development is senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen. Good morning, Frank. Frank, it seems like you and your team might be closing in on what might be described as an analytical breakthrough. Is that right? You know, we think so. Because, <laughs> you know, I've been, I've been talking about risk-based auditing since 2011. That's when uh, CMS released release the fraud prevention system. So that's a series of predictive analytics algorithms that are still in use today. And what they do is they analyze appropriateness of Medicare fee-for-service claims, and 100% of all those claims are passed through these algorithms uh, prior to payment. About eight years ago, uh, the feds recognized that random probe audits were pretty much useless. And looking at just utilization or utilization comparisons resulted in these um, huge amounts of false positives. So since the introduction of that fraud prevention system, CMS has made it pretty clear to practices that they need to step up to the plate and improve the methods they use for internal monitoring, for coding and billing. So, so hence the increased focus on risk-based auditing. And we hear that term a lot, but the basic concept is this. Rather than spending time looking at encounters that have a low risk of audit or you don't know what the risk is, which is a false positive, spend the same resources looking at encounters that are most likely to be audited. This doesn't necessarily mean that these encounters are more likely to have built an error, only that they've been selected for audit for some reason. Um, I've been working on building predictive algorithms since 2010, 2011, and to date, I've been able to analyze actually tens of millions of encounters for some 30,000 physicians. And I'm really pleased to say that using these advanced techniques actually works. Uh, For example, uh, when I analyze an audit, let's say that's already been conducted, so we already know the codes and modifiers have been selected. We do it retrograde. I get a match rate of just over 87%. That means that when we train these algorithms properly, they can predict with a very high degree of accuracy which codes or modifiers for which physicians are most likely to be subject to a a non-random external audit. Uh, And that's huge. And not just from the standpoint of scoring the success of the models, but from the standpoint of cost. Uh, For example, let's say the typical internal medicine physician bills maybe 100 different and unique procedures during a year. A random probe audit of 30 charts maybe captures five or six of those procedures. So that means about 95% of all of the risk events are excluded from the analysis. And, And that, to me, is pretty much worthless. But if you knew which five or six were most likely to be audited and you spent the resources to look at those instead, you would have in our study, captured nearly 90% of the risk events. So this results in in a really low false positive and almost a nearly uh, zero false negative rate. Uh, Another way to tell if the model is working is to look at post-audit results. So, uh, for example, the CERT study, which we've talked about in the past, uh, for 2017, they reported that the average billing error for physicians for Part B was 10.2%. Overall, for everybody, was 9.5%. So, so that means if you conducted a random probe for your, your organization, you would get an error rate of around 9.5%. Uh, what if, however, you conducted an internal audit of just risk-targeted claims? Well, one might think that the error rate should be the same, but remember, these events are targeted for a reason, and the algorithms go way beyond um, just the usual random selection criteria like utilization. So in our study, those events targeted as high risk reported an error rate of 18% or nearly double the national average. Now, for a predictive algorithm to be successful, if I want to report my predictive models um, 
and say they're successful, actually you just have to be more accurate than chance. In this case, you know, 9.5% or 10.2% for the provider physicians. But while we don't expect to see a huge error rate just because it's a high risk, an error rate of 18% is to me like more than amazing. So our next step is to predict which claims are most likely to have been billed in error without opening a chart, and that's what we're doing next. Remember this, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, all change is preceded by crisis, and I'm saying it doesn't have to be. And that's the world according to Frank Chuck. Back to you. That was Senior Healthcare Analyst Frank Cohen. Frank is the Director of Business Analytics and Intelligence for Doctors Management. Thanks a lot, Frank. That was excellent. Nancy, let's take a look at the results of our Monitor Monday listener survey. All righty. Well, we're going to see where our listeners are. We'll compare our poll up next week uh, to the winnings. On the phone this morning, participating in Monitor Monday, 16% of our listeners are going for the Kansas Jayhawks. All right. 29% are for Loyola, Chicago. <laughs> and 13% are for Michigan, with 16% for Villanova. 23% had no pick, and I encourage all of those 23% with no pick to watch the Final Four this weekend and rally for somebody. Chuck, back to you. Great, Nancy. Thanks. What a nice uh, poll. What a great change of pace for us. By the way, I didn't have David Glazer in my bracket. David, let's take a look at a couple of questions that might be coming in. Cheryl has almost a comment of sorts, which is, uh, David, you've got a combined time of two visits on the same day with physicians from the same provider group uh, or the same NPI number. CMS won't pay both. And Cheryl makes a good point, although I've got to tweak it a little bit because it's actually got to be in the same specialty. Two doctors in the same group can bill an E&M on the same day, but it's the same specialty. And my comment there is I haven't seen much many situations where you would be combining the time, but I think that that would work. Um, and then Ron, a listener, wants to know, hey, what if the do- doctors hate pre-certifications? Can a doctor call in a pre-certification with the patient sitting there? How does that work? And um, I don't think there's a crystal that, that to me sounds like coordinating care. And as long as 50% of the visit was counseling and coordinating care, I think there's a very cogent argument that that would be permissible. Um, but that ultimately would be the question is how long is that pre-cert call last relative to the rest of the visit. So, Chuck, I think that's all we've got time for. I will turn it back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That is going to be a wrap for us, and I want to thank you for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, Frank Cohen, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Dr. Ron Hirsch, and Angie Phillips. And we want to thank you uh, for being with us, and we look forward to your being with us next Monday for another edition of Monitor Monday. That's when we're going to report on telemedicine being in the crosshairs of the OIG. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday Interact Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Have a great week, everyone. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.